In part one, we learned how factors inside a firm may become a source of competitive advantage, source of firm success. We talked about resources, capabilities, and core competences. We learned that resources, capabilities, and core competences that are valuable, rare, inimitable, and organized to capture value provide firms with sustained competitive advantage. In this part of the chapter four lecture, I'll talk about markets that you buy or sell these resources. We call markets where firms can buy and sell resources that are necessary to implement strategies, strategic factor markets. If you are to enter a new geographical market, um, a new country or region, for example, and you believe that the experience and visibility of a domestic company would quicken the entry process and increase the chances of success in the new market, you may go to market for companies and acquire a domestic company. Domestic company that you acquired here is the strategic resource and the market for companies is a strategic factor market. I know it's so abstract. How are you gonna go to a market for companies? Is there a physical location called such? Of course, no, markets are abstract. Most of the time there is no physical location that you personally go and pick resources. Take this example. This is a large construction company originates from Russia and operates in more than 40 countries. The company is among the top 10 construction companies in the world. During an interview with the CEO of the company, I asked how the company diversifies its market. Here's his response. Mostly, we look for companies that we can buy in order to penetrate a new market. Financial institutions play the matching role. Our bank called us once and mentioned about a company which was in financial difficulty in country X. We bought this domestic company for a good price. So as you can see in this example, the market for companies in, is the network built with financial institutions. Amazon is a marketplace, right? There are buyers and sellers going to the Amazon website to engage in the activity of interest. Here for this particular case, financial institutions are the Amazon of Renaissance company. Of course, this does not tell the whole story. There are other examples of factor markets where you can buy and sell resources. For example, labor markets are also strategic factor markets. A career fair at a, at a college or a conference where researchers visit can all be marketplaces where firms can acquire talented labor as a resource. LinkedIn, indeed, or other job search platforms are strategic factor markets as well. Labor can be a critical asset for pursuing a strategy. For Amazon, for example, recruiting from top schools such as Harvard, Stanford, MIT, and the like has always been critical. And Jeff Bezos has hired many times when went to these schools to give a speech. A group of researchers, including me, is interested in whether firms' activities in strategic factor markets can be a source of competitive advantage or competitive parity. They argue that apart from getting access to VRIO resources, in what terms um, you acquire these resources may also matter. What I mean by in what terms you acquire a resource does also matter. 
consider you need to acquire resource X to implement a strategy. The price of the resource is 100, and after you implemented the strategy, your returns exceeded the rival's returns in industry. Do you think that you gained competitive advantage? Let's say that your returns are 90, which are higher than your rival's returns. Although you did well, we service your competitors in the product market, your inferior strategic factor market performance in acquiring X didn't translate into competitive advantage because your cost of acquisition of this resource, which amounted 100, exceeded the resources returns of 90. Therefore, how much you buy, what you buy, is as important as what you buy. If the seller charges you more than the resources contribution to your strategy, you're worse off. So to generate positive value, you need to acquire your resources at a price lower than their contribution to your strategy. You, um, your acquisition performance determines your firm performance at the end of the day. The rule of thumb is then acquiring a resource lower than the returns from this resource. In other words, acquiring an undervalued resource and avoid acquiring an overvalued resource. But knowing that you will get higher returns than the price you pay, why would a seller sell you at this price? Or although you know that you won't be able to generate returns as much as the price you pay, why would you be willing to pay this price? The simple answer to this question is neither parties, seller or buyer um, in this exchange, know the real value or future returns from a resource for sure. Regardless of the profits the seller gains, the important issue for you as a buyer is to acquire the resource below its current and future potential contribution to your firm. Knowing the resource's current and future value for sure is not possible given the uncertainties and complexities of the business world. Who would know that Zoom's technical capabilities would hit the market under pandemic conditions? All of a sudden, things can change and such shifts may totally change the value a resource, value of a resource, which was not valuable in the past. Accurate expectations are rare in a real world. Still, your target while acquiring a new resource is to sense the undervaluation opportunities. Is the seller selling the resource at a price lower than the value that I expect the resource would contribute to my firm? If so, exploit this undervaluation opportunity, right? Let's go back to the same example I gave you on the previous video in chapter four. Apple's acquisition of Fingerworks. Apple definitely acquired the multi-touch technology way below its future value, namely the potential contribution of the resource to its existing and future returns. Although Apple earned a fortune from multi-touch technology, if this technology stayed with the Fingerworks company and never discovered by Apple, it might not have contributed to go to Fingerworks revenues as much as it did to Apple's. There are two sides of this success story. One is that Apple was more competent to make the best use of this technology. 
It has unique complementary resources such as competent engineers, existing technologies, product development ideas that made the multi-touch technology more valuable at Apple than at Fingerworks. Apple was the one who improved the technology and introduced the revolutionary smartphone, iPhone. Second, Apple was superior in its expectations about the potential of this technology. It was not Nokia, today's rest in peace guy, but the market leader at the time who discovered and realized the potential of this technology. It was Apple. So Apple's superior insights and expectations its its rivals, such as Nokia, gave way to today's most valuable company in the world. Let me give you another example, which is very interesting, especially for those of you who love classic cars. The desperate car in the upper right corner is a 1964 Riviera. One of the most well-known mechanics um, in the US has converted this rust bucket into America's best custom car. But interestingly, he bought it for $400 and sold it for 1.5 million. In the second row, you'll see a super rare Ferrari California Spider. This is one of 36 ever made. Aside from its rarity, the Ferrari is prized for having been photographed, carrying stars Elaine Delon, as well as Shirley MacLaine and Jane Fonda, during the 1964 filming of La Felines. This car was sold in February 2015 at an auction for a stunning $23 million, making it the, first, making it the fifth most expensive car ever sold. Ironically, the car was found forgotten on a farm in Western France. These stories are different, um, in a critical way. In the first one, the expert and the owner of the car valued the car dramatically differently. The expert's accurate valuation, however, helped him make a fortune. If the owner had the same expectation or similar complementary resources such as skills to convert the car into the one in the left, he would have sold it for only, he wouldn't have sold it for um, only 400 bucks in the first place. In the second example, however, we refer to luck condition. How many times can a farm owner find a million dollar worth car in his warehouse, right? However, luck is not something that we can consistently have because it's out of control. So the relevant question is how are we going to have better expectations than rivals and sellers. And these expectations should not be from luck. They should be systematic. As I indicated, the seller and the buyer of the car had different expectations about the value of the car. One reason is that they had different complementary resources and capabilities. The seller might have no skills to fix the car. The second is that there are information asymmetries among market actors. They already know that Firms have heterogeneous resources, so the key in strategic factor markets is to gain informational advantages. To have better information, you need to engage in external and internal analysis. Thanks to external analysis, you better understand the price a seller will ask for 
and the value that other rivals can capture from the resource. At the same time, through internal analysis, um, you better know your own capabilities and complementarities with the target resource so you understand the value of the resource to yourself. Then you can accurately form expectations about the better or accurate expectations about the value and the price of the resource and acquire the resource at a price lower than the value. As a rough overview on the concepts I covered in this chapter so far, I mainly talked about the RIO and the strategic factor markets as being at the core of resource-based view that is effective in making internal analysis. The resource-based view argues that resources that are simultaneously valuable, rare, imperfectly imitable, and imperfectly substitutable are a source of competitive advantage. The underlying assumptions on which the resource-based view of the firm is based are that resources are heterogeneous across organizations and that this heterogeneity can sustain over time by acquiring such resources undervalued in strategic factor markets because it does not specifically address how future valuable resources could be created or how the current stock of vital resources can be refreshed in changing environments. RBV has been criticized by some researchers on the grounds that it's static and does not embrace dynamism in business environment. Many industries are subject to rapid technological change, as you may guess, um, or market entry from global innovators or volatility in market demand. Companies that cannot anticipate or respond to external disruption are unlikely to survive. In volatile industries, organizations need strategies, structures, and processes that enable agility and responsiveness in a shifting competitive landscape. Therefore, as a response to the critics about resource-based view, as an extension of resource-based view, another view has emerged, dynamic capabilities view. Dynamic capabilities view is a short of, is a sort of integrating both external analysis and internal analysis tools and the logic, because it argues that it's essential to consider the changing nature of the external environment, and hence the role of strategic management is principally about adapting, integrating, and reconfiguring internal and external organizational skills, resources, and functional competences toward the changing environment. So in brief, the idea is that as a response to the changes in external environment, you change your internal resources and capabilities. According to the um, dynamic capabilities view, if a firm possesses viral resources, but does not use any dynamic capabilities to, um, to adapt its resources to the changing environments, its superior returns cannot be sustained. Without the dynamic capabilities, a firm's returns may be short-lived if the environment exhibits any significant change. Many um, once successful firms are argued to be struggling and failing as their environments changed and they're unable to adapt successfully. 
Thus, dynamic capabilities are defined as the firm's ability to integrate, build, and reconfigure internal and external competences to address rapidly changing environments. Firms can adapt to shifting business landscape by developing capabilities to learn new capabilities and accumulate resources over time. So such capabilities cannot be acquired from so-called factor markets, but can only be developed in-house over time through insightful management. To explain how dynamic capabilities are developed rather than acquired from factor markets, Dynamic capabilities view uses a bathtub metaphor. At any moment in time, the stock of water is the level of water in the tub. It is the cumulative result of flows of water into the tub and out of it. To develop a new product or a new strategy, you need to possess a stock of R&D know-how and capabilities, for example. The amount of water in the tub represents the stock of know-how at a particular moment in time. The current R&D spending is represented by the water flowing in through the tap. As know-how depreciates over time through technological advancements, hence dynamism, flow also represents the flow of water leaking through the hole in the tub. 